Hello, and welcome to this first episode of Library Discoveries with your host, me, Paul Detman, in London, or at least in Buckinghamshire, but we're mainly focusing on London. And today we have a book for you from the London Library in St. James's Square. This book is not exactly an autobiography, but it is uh, biographical in nature, and it's a series of articles written by a guy called Lord Baden-Powell, uh, somebody I refer to in, in my article on Medium as the Scout Spy, because he was the founder of the Scouting for Boys movement. Uh, we just call it the Scouts or the Cub Scouts here in England. And he was also a spy working for the British Army. In fact, the word scout, of course, is uh, synonymous with the word spy in many respects, if you think about what a scout does other than uh, winning badges and uh, ironing shirts. So the reason for picking this book actually is an interesting one. Uh, a few years ago, I used to do uh, spy tours, walking tours uh, in central London, uh, mainly around uh, Broadway and uh, down to Vauxhall Cross. And then there was another one in Mayfair for the Cold War era, uh, where MI5 used to be, uh, where the American embassy used to be, where the Litvinenko poisoning happened and all that kind of stuff. And as part of that, I used to walk past uh, Queen Anne's Gate, which is now just a very sort of posh street in London in, near St. James's Park. But it's also near what used to be the Home Office, now the Ministry of Justice, and other even more secret offices like GCHQ as well. Queen Anne's Gate is interesting because there are a lot of very expensive townhouses on there, but there are also lots of blue plaques. And on numbers 16 to 18, which is just two houses next door to each other, it's a big long terrace, there is a plaque uh, to do with the British Army's base for spying back in the day. These houses now are mainly private homes, but they have also been public buildings in the past. One of them was the back entrance to MI6, the house, the townhouse of... Um, Mansfield Cummings, one of the former heads, perhaps some people say the original C, Green Ink and all that business. And Queen Anne's Gate, so this is across the road from uh, MI6 and Smith Cummings. Number 16 was used by the British Army as a an office and a, a base. And so I thought, wouldn't it be great, uh, because we don't have much time on the walks to go into each story in a great depth, let's do that uh, in a blog. And we, we chose Medium for this, I chose Medium for this, and uh, Let's just take a look at that article, and that explains how we ended up with the copy on my desk right here, the nice brightly blue-coloured uh, Adventures and Accidents by Lord Baden-Powell from 1934. There are many blue plaques on Queen Anne's Gate, which originally was Queen Anne's Square until it was merged with Park Street in 1874. The large mansions became government offices before returning to private residential use only recently. A good-sized house here sells for around £25 million, and one of these was used for spying by the future founder of the World Scouting Movement, Robert Baden-Powell, the first Baron Baden-Powell. He was a lieutenant general in the British Army and had many honours, including the very famous GCMG, which, if you've ever seen Yes Minister, uh, is sometimes known as God Calls Me God. It's one of the very highest British honours. So I asked the question, how did all of this happen? And of course, the answer is that during the years uh, between 1884 and 1901, 16 Queen Anne's Gate was used by the intelligence branch of the British Army. And inside these two terrace townhouses, the British Army planned some amazing operations. Now, some other people have mentioned this in the past in various articles, but Frederick Forsyth has said that secrecy and patriotism have long been tenets of the British culture. And what he meant by that, what he goes on to expand, was that you know, the CIA or whoever might in, in America might buy information from people overseas for a fee, believing that, you know, the more money they throw at somebody, the more likely they are to be helpful, uh, which is not uh, in itself illogical, but it's not very British. It's not very English. And Freddie Forsyth suggested that the British found 
the British Secret Service found that foreigners, British people abroad, obviously foreigners when they're abroad, but British people, uh, were quite happy to help the various MI6s of this world, SOE, you know, depending on the time of, of, of what we're talking about. They could be counted to do the work for free, even if it was dangerous. Uh, and so what happened tended to be that British officers, sometimes alongside members of the public, so British people who were, who were staying abroad for whatever reason, either work, because they just fancied the climate, whatever it was, were quite happy to take large cameras and drawing materials, notebooks, pretend to be tourists, uh, and were doing a rather good job of pretending to be tourists, but in fact spying for the British army and other people. And incredibly, at that time, Baden-Powell uh, was posing as a tourist, if not a tourist himself. He became famous for his work in a place called Dalmatia, which of course is uh, more famous now as, as home of the Dalmatian dogs, but is now part of Croatia. And when he was in Dalmatia with his notebooks and his cameras and stuff, he was pretend, or fairly rudimentary cameras, it has to be said. He pretended to be an entomologist, which is an insect expert, and began to draw vivid pictures of butterflies and their wings, which sounds absolutely fabulous, but not very interesting, perhaps, to the British Army. Um, but interspersed on alternate sheets in this sketchbook, he drew very detailed studies of a fortress at Katara, including the position and angle and so on, size of its guns and other defences. And these kind of missions, although somewhat informal, perhaps not particularly well orchestrated or organised, helped to build up Britain's knowledge of her own empire and also of, you know, uh, foreign agents and foreign governments who might be antagonistic towards Britain's interests. And as any good spy knows anyway, that today's allies are tomorrow's enemies. So although in some ways information back then was harder to obtain, if you think about what is possible now with things like Google Street View, you just cannot get the kind of detail that Baden Powell's sketchbook would have would have contained. Um, you know, it's it just gets all grainy. And although the spies have satellites which can get you down to that kind of detail, um, they're not widely available. You know, they're very restricted access and very expensive uh, to maintain and run those networks too. So it's still today, even now with all of the electronics and the smartphones and the cameras and everything. It's true that in-the-field espionage requires more than a drone and a high-definition camera. And Baden-Powell knew that. A lot of artists will tell you, if you've ever looked at, you know, articles or, or interviews with Hockney, uh, anybody who's around now, they think, and, and who, who am I to argue, they think that the human eye and the, the painting and the drawing and the sketchbook and all the rest of it somehow represents reality in a way that the camera never will and, and never can. Because as you know, whenever you take a, you know, even a thousand pound iPhone, you take a picture of something in the garden, you look at the picture and you think, that's not what I saw. It's it's too small, it's too grainy, it's it's the wrong color, it's, it's, it's not even in focus, it's this, it's that. And if you take a sketch from somebody who can actually sketch, so obviously not me, you get a completely different representation of that scene, but it's somehow, reflects or captures what the human eye was looking at or thought they were seeing way more than a camera ever will no matter how much money you have to spend on a camera the biggest lens you know whatever it is it will give you a different answer and i think what baden powell was trying to do with his scouting movement and with his own work and help for the british army was to try and capture important stuff and i'll come back to that later in this episode and we're going to take a look at the book now and I'm trying to get you a flavor of what this show is meant to be like. I'm not making it up as I go along. I have the research printed out. I have the book here 
but I am certainly trying to aim for something a bit more conversational than my fiction podcast, which you might be familiar with because they've been going a little bit longer than this one. So let's look at the book as it is as an object, as it arrived in the post during lockdown from the London Library in St. James's Square. Thank you. Over to you, Paul. So thanks, Paul. Yeah, I have here uh, the copy as it arrived from 1934, uh, looking, I have to say, brand spanking new. So what's going on here? What is the book itself going to tell us? And this is one reason I wanted to pick library books and not, uh, you know, bookshop, shop bought books, um, because they have a history, which especially um, from a place as, as, as old as the London Library, but even any local lending library will be the same. They have a history which goes beyond the text and beyond the words. So here we go. So first of all, this book is bright blue. Here it is. There'll be a picture up on the various Whatsits, Instagrams and stuff later on. It's bright blue. It's brand new. I swear to God, it's brand new. And yet the inside tells me it's 1934. And this is not a, you know, none of this reprint rubbish. This is the first edition from 1934. And it arrived in the library, according to this stamp, on the 5th of December, 1934. So what we have clearly here is a book that's been rebound. And there is a date stamp inside the backboard, which suggests to me that that might be the date it was rebound. And that's the 1st of June, 2017. Fits, you know, it looks like it's three years old. And I know uh, in that time that I'm the only person who's borrowed it. So if it looks new, smells new, uh, the evidence suggests it is new, then the cover at least is new, it's been rebound. Okay, so once we're inside the book, uh, and the front cover, as always, just inside the, the, it's not a jacket exactly, it's a board, it's hardback. Inside we have the rules, care and use of books. And these rules, I don't think they'll mind me saying, are pretty stiff and pretty formal. We have things like um, members are liable for the full cost of an exact replacement of any book which is lost, damaged, defaced, and so on. So in other words, this book itself, being so old, first edition, as far as I can tell, okay, it's not in mint condition, but it's not going to be worth £5, let's put it that way. And uh, a member who fails to return a volume blah, blah, will forfeit further borrowing rights until the matter is resolved. Doesn't say how the matter might be resolved. Presumably returning the volume is the easiest way, but this is a very somewhat sinister list. And I have to say that that is not the impression given by this group of people at all. They they are not sinister people. But I think this reflects the fact that a lot of these rules were written, you know, a hundred years ago. Most of them have not changed in that time. But I fancy that the word highlighter in here as, as being a way that a book might be defaced is probably quite recent. But I think the tone and the gist of these rules is as old as the library itself, I would imagine. And I think that's nice. They certainly put the fear of God into me. And I have to say, I've never lost or damaged a single London library book in all the years I've been a member. So there we go. Uh, it's working, I'm afraid. Thanks, guys. So uh, the book arrived in 1934. That was the year it was published. It has a pencil capital L on the title page. So they always do that. I don't know why they do that. And on the verse of the title as well. And it has a stamp on, which is like a, it's produced like a watermark. It's a blind stamp, which has the library name and its year of opening, 18 something. Um, and it also has the original library catalogue number, which if you're interested is 04333. But there is also a barcode too. Um, so, you know, they are well up to date. And for all I know, there's an RFID tag in there as well. So they know exactly where I am at all times, day and night, when the book is in my possession, at least. So the date of the borrowing page is quite recent. I did say that it arrived in the library in December 1934, December the 5th. 
But the borrowing page, you know that little slip which you get glued into a library book? Uh, most libraries uh, put in the date that you're meant to bring it back. The London Library do not do this. They put in the date that you borrowed the book. This is because, you know, there's a long loan period. There's no fines, uh, notwithstanding the rules I've just mentioned. Um, there's no actual fining system. You just get, uh, you know, a pretty jolly good talking to. So they put in the date that you borrowed it, which means that, first of all, I know when I borrowed it, which was the 16th of January. So this has taken about three months to get around to. Um, but also I can see it's not been borrowed since 2012, the year of the London Olympics. So hopefully after hearing this, you're going to borrow this, uh, but please don't try and steal it off me using their online booking system um, because I've not quite finished this podcast episode yet. And yeah, so not many people borrowing it. Goodness knows why it had to be recovered. Maybe there's a story behind there that they can help me with. One shudders to think what might have happened to such a book to require a completely new cover. And the oldest borrow on this slip anyway was the 6th of September 1976, which strangely enough is the year I was born. I would have been about six months old in September 1976. So there we go. That's the book itself. Uh, the pages themselves, you know, they're pretty old. They don't feel like modern paper, which is all sort of papery. They feel more like a cotton type feel to it. And there is intermittent foxing, but it's very mild and sparse. You could imagine if this came onto the market that, you know, the, the seller wouldn't need to mention it really. You really can't see it, and even as you're looking for it. If you're being really picky and they're asking too high a price, you might mention it. The last handful of pages constitutes a partial catalogue of Methuen, a famous London publisher. Um, some very famous books in here. I don't think this one counts as a famous book. Baden-Powell's kind of, you know, occasional features. Some of the other books you could buy from Methuen at this time included Einstein's works, The Wind in the Willows, a whole page and a bit by a guy called E.V. Lucas, whoever he was. Uh, Charles Lamb's letters. Uh, you know, it's quite a eclectic selection, shall we say. And then the very final line of the book, the very last line is not the end or something. It actually informs us that the book was printed by Gerald and Sons in Norwich. And satisfyingly, Gerald still trades, although they have not been concerned with printing and publishing for sort of 15 years or so. They were up until that time. And clearly a household name in Norwich, a family firm, uh, members of the family still on the board at Gerald's. Uh, what is striking to me is that there was none of these big long introductions, prefaces, acknowledgements, all this kind of stuff. Uh, it does mention that some of these articles are features from things like the Cornhill magazine and other less famous uh, publications. But that's kind of like the legal minimum, really. There's no thing about uh, Baden-Powell himself. But I would like to mention that GCMG, it doesn't stand for God Calls Me God. It stands for the Knight Grand Cross of the Order of St. Michael and St. George, a very famous order in British uh, honours matters. And he also got a GCVO, which I didn't know, which is an also Knight Grand Cross. GC always means Knight Grand Cross of the Royal Victorian Order. Um, so let's dig into the book. That's the book as an object. And I really want that to be an important part of this podcast is the book itself is a thing. And one of the reasons I like books so much is that you don't need something to play them on, which sounds a bit stupid to say, but if you hear me out, you know, if you've got a CD, if you're old enough to have any CDs or you've got a player in the car, the CD is basically, the, you know, the LP, I don't know how old you are, but the, the tape, the, the reel-to-reel tape, whatever it is, that's basically software for a machine, yeah? The book is the book. The book is the book is the book. The book is not software for a machine. It is the thing. It is actually a thing which doesn't need electricity, or doesn't need a handle to wind up, it doesn't need a computer, 
it is an object and this podcast is as much about the object and the way they're bound and some of the things I can explain what the word verso means, for example. You know, all of this stuff is just as important as the words and the, the person who wrote them, as far as I'm concerned, especially when you're talking about books as old as this one. It's, it's nearly 100 years old now, 80 something years old, and it has been in the library for 80 years since the day it was published. And it's been borrowed by maybe 100 people in that time. It's not a famous book by any means. Okay, so uh, enough about the book. Let's look inside the book. And here we have chapter one. I've picked chapter one. And I've picked something about uh, spying as well, because I thought those were the two that stood out to me. Uh, there's also a lot of guff about Africa and running after elephants and lots of jungle activity, which I'm sure is great for, you know, if you're a scout or something. But the ones that really stood out to me were the yachting adventure, which is uh, chapter one, because that's about his childhood and how Baden-Powell was formed. And you can see this very vividly, I think, in chapter one. And also the spying in a foreign dockyard, because that clearly relates to his work as, as a scout leader, uh, a, b a beginner of the movement of scouting, which I was a member of when I was young and as a big part of my childhood. Okay, so Robert Baden-Powell, Lord Baden-Powell, as we now know, Baron Baden-Powell, no less, um, begins this book with a chapter called A Yachting Adventure. And basically, uh, all I know about yachting, I learned from my dog. So this is pretty gripping stuff for me. It's pretty dangerous. It's pretty exciting. And you simply cannot imagine a young man, well, a boy and his brothers doing this stuff. This is seriously, seriously dangerous stuff. So what did they do? One of his tips, before he get into the boat business, um, what he found and, and what he used later on in the military was what he found was that when you get nervous, when someone gets nervous, one of the things that a leader can do to help that person, strange though it may seem, is to find a really petty, pedantic fault to criticize. So for example, you know, you're about to get blown up by a shell or something, and you notice that this guy's rucksack, he calls it a haversack, but it's a rucksack, uh, is wrongly fitted, it's not buckled up, it's not tightly done, however it's meant to be done, the, the arm strap's too long, all this business, you can just start going on about this. And then they get obsessed because you're their leader and, you know, they're meant to do what you're telling them and listen to you, which is not always the case now, but it was then. Uh, you know, they they try and fix the little thing that you've been going on about and that stops them worrying about being killed, which strangely makes them less likely to get killed. So there we go. Good tip, I thought. Um, I'm going to use that uh, during lockdown a bit. So anyway, things go wrong as soon as page three. So we've got the introductions out of the way. They're in Portsmouth, Portsmouth Harbour, on this little boat that somebody's found. It's one of his older brother's boats. I the harbour has proved to be too safe. Now, if you've ever seen Portsmouth Harbour, it's absolutely huge. It's one of the biggest harbours ports in the UK, certainly, and, and one of the biggest naval dockyards there is now. Portsmouth Harbour was too safe and dull, so the skipper of their little fun craft decides to take them out to open sea. Uh, and basically, they only do this if they can see a storm on the horizon. So... What they're going to do is they're going to go out into, into Portsmouth, into the English Channel, and rescue a ship of Her Majesty's Royal Navy, or possibly even then His Majesty's Royal Navy, I can't remember. I read this chapter in January, by the way. So the more realistic prospect, of course, is that Lord Baden-Powell, then just Robert, uh, his brothers are the ones who need rescuing. So it's very unlikely that their little fun craft is going to be able to rescue a, a submarine or, uh, you know, a surfacing submarine of the Royal Navy. So the reason for rescuing a Royal Navy ship, of course, is to get loads of applause, but also you can get salvage money uh, and get quite well paid for this. And of course, the most likely outcome is that um, they will have to pay for them getting rescued, but that's um, not going to deter 
Baden-Powell. And one day in a storm, they saw the lifeboat going out into a, the teeth of a, a big gale. They observed that there were only two safe channels through the sand and that the lifeboat would almost certainly take the wrong one. For a day and a night, so think of how long that might feel as a young boy, their little boat fights the storm bravely, and when they eventually make it home, the lifeboat and the distressed vessel are safely in the harbour hours before them. Not exactly a roaring success then. And on another occasion, they actually set off in fine weather, so they weren't expecting a storm, and they ran aground near the shore. And then standing up in the boat, they were rocking it, so rocking side to side, trying to get the boat free of the rocks, uh, they spot three other boats racing to their rescue. Now, of course, they don't want to be rescued because if they get rescued, they have to pay the rescuers the salvage money. That's the last thing that they want, especially with their modest means. So the eldest brother refuses all help on the grounds that, you know, we don't want to pay the money. This is the moment when young Robert learns the lesson that I began this little section with. This is a, a moment of danger. I mean, it sounds kind of frivolous, perhaps, you know, it's fine weather and so on. But they are stuck for a long time on these rocks and really the water, you know, he was too deep to swim in, very cold most likely. So his brother shouts at him to do something trivial, fiddle with a knot or, you know, whatever a young scout might have done. Um, but while he's fiddling around with this rope, the other brothers manage to get the, the boat off the rocks and, and they sail it back to Portsmouth Harbour. But I thought this was fascinating because, you know, it shows a kind of scouty situation you can imagine any Boy Scout getting into, although these days you'd have leaders and supervision and certain number of adults per kid and all this kind of business. Health and safety forms and things would be, you know, not permitting perhaps this kind of activity. Not in this way anyway. Uh, I just thought it was a really exciting adventure. And then later on in his life, he was um, trying to spy on a dockyard where there was believed to be um, a power station being built and a dry dock, a dock for repairing and fitting ships. And it was behind a, a guarded wall. And he managed to sneak through um, with a group of people. Uh, he didn't exactly evade the police, the sentries. They did see him and they gave chase, but he managed to outrun them. And then he came up with a tip, which I think was also very useful. And I'm, I'm sure you will use this, you know, when you're working at home every day, is that if you are just slightly higher than somebody's eye level. So maybe you're sitting in a window ledge or a tree branch or on the top of a wall as he was. If you're just a little bit above their eye level, the person will never see you no matter how close or how far away they are. So he was halfway up this ladder when the policeman caught up with him and he just froze, deliberately froze. And he was about 15 feet off the ground and, and very close to the policeman who could easily have seen him, you know, without any difficulty at all. It was almost a surprise that he didn't get seen. And the reason he didn't get seen was he was just high enough that the policeman didn't lift his head and didn't look higher enough to see him on the ladder. And when the policeman had gone past, he got down and, and carried on. But he managed to take a compass bearing from the top of the ladder, a two compass bearings, which gave the precise position when later plotted on a map of the exact location of the power station and therefore the, um, the, the dry dock that was being constructed as well. So... Uh, an incredibly, well, quite dangerous situation. Could have been arrested, thrown in jail, interrogated, whatever, worse, uh, under wartime conditions. But a somewhat uh, trivial, silly, fun little trick, a little bit like this idea of, you know, getting somebody to worry about something trivial that uh, pretty much not only saved his bacon again, but also allowed him to get that information back out 
to uh, whoever he was working for at the time. And he goes on to make the point, which I think is also relevant to our times, which is that, um, you know, you can uh, lose yourself in spying. Spying can be dangerous. A lot of people have found it very dangerous, as we'll find out in a later episode. But it's it's not inherently life-threatening in the way that being shot is. You know, it's a way that you can serve your country during a time of war, which is... um, attractive to a certain type of person and it's hopefully obvious from the fact that I chose this book to start the podcast that I am exactly that type of person not brave enough for a frontal assault perhaps but perfectly brave enough to sneak around uh, in the shadows so there we go that's Lord Baden Powell God calls him God apparently and he is up there now or wherever he is so um, well good luck to him he gave me many many fun weekends days months as a scout when I was young had a great time burning stuff, including myself, hitting myself with an axe, that kind of thing. All of it due to him. And this is the story, the, the couple of anecdotes there that I've chosen from his book about how he became who he became. Uh, let's see if we can get it borrowed more than once in the next seven or eight years. Thanks for listening. We're nearly there. I've got, I'm going to keep this down to 30 minutes, I swear. Um, although I've been told not to swear for uh, reasons of um, American audiences. Uh, but anyway, uh, other books coming soon. There are some books right here in my office right now from the London Library. It's two volumes of Musil, Robert Musil's uh, Man Without Qualities. Orwell's final two volumes of uh, journalism, mainly from the new Davison set or newish. Lowney, Andrew Lowney, great guy. His guy, Burgess. Uh, lots of guys in that sentence, but never mind. I've not edited this yet. Uh, Stuart Mingus, MI6. His book, Little Bit Thick, shall we say. Sometimes autobiographies can be a little bit thick. They're all here. Uh, let me know uh, in the whatever you want to do, Instagram or email or whatever. Just let me know if you have a preference, because I can do these in any order, basically, and I'm quite interested to be given a mission there. Otherwise, you'll get about one a week or so, most likely on a Wednesday afternoon, which is, uh, it is Wednesday afternoon now, and I will be publishing this in the next two hours. So thanks for listening. Hope it was as interesting as I found it, um, and if not, never mind, but I can promise you the next one um, will be seriously interesting. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Library Discoveries. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider donating to help with our hosting costs. We do not carry any adverts of our own and we rely on donations to continue. To do this and to read more about the books featured in Library Discoveries, please visit our website librarydiscoveries.uk Thank you for listening. See you next week.